0: to another episode of the 10th and L podcast brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman and I'm joined today by Tyler Wolf. Tyler, how are you?
1: Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, you know, today's going great except for when I woke up today, I decided to uh, jumpstart the car that's been sitting all winter that had flat tires that doesn't have registration. Uh, I jumped it successfully. <laughs> I made it here I couldn't find anywhere to fill up my tires. None of the gas stations had a functioning air pump, so I just drove here. You know, Jesus, take the wheel. And then my car wouldn't start when I got here. So here we are. I'm doing great. This is gonna be fine. We'll get a jump start later. Yeah, That's maybe in my day,
0: <laughs> maybe by sitting in the sunlight, your tires will reinflate. We can only hope. That's right? right. Warm air.
1: Solar powered tires.
0: Oh, so goodness. Well, hopefully you're, if you're listening to this, you're having a better Monday than Tyler. I told Tyler when I arrived today that I was having a sort of Monday where you hit every red light on the way to the office. And then he told me about his morning and it is obviously a lot worse. So uh, Tyler hit us with a few announcements and then I'll talk us through where we went last week and we can talk about where we're going today.
1: All right, we've got plenty coming up for everybody. Uh, We have a Life Group Leader meeting on June 24th. That is going to be at 6 p.m., and we are providing dinner and child care for you. So if you are a Life Group Leader or a co-host, please plan on joining us. We're going to be right here at First Baptist, 1100 West 10th Avenue. Uh, We're also hosting a Volunteer Appreciation Day at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center out by Girdwood on July 17th. We're going to meet there at 10 a.m., and we want to pay the admission for you. We want this to be a gift for you. Uh, We want to thank you for the time that you spend uh, each and every Sunday volunteering for the church. And lastly, uh, if you remember, on May 30th, we had a church in the park. We're going to do that again on July 18th. So at 11 a.m. at Cuddy Family Park in Midtown Anchorage, Uh, We're going to be hosting Church in the Park. Uh, Please bring your own picnic blanket if you would like that or lawn chair. Um, There is some seating there at the amphitheater, but it can be kind of wet if it rains. could be a little uncomfortable, so feel free to use your discretion. Uh, I personally had a two-seater
0: lawn chair, and it was rad. Right on. Thank you, Tyler. I'm really excited about Volunteer Appreciation Day. Uh, This is not something that we've done in my uh, two and a half or three years here at True North. We've done some other things to say thanks to our volunteers, but this is going to be a really fun weekend to have that on Saturday and then turn right around and meet outside at the park on the 18th. So if you're listening to this, uh, you can join us in prayer that the weather will be great that weekend, because it's sort of a double or nothing thing for us uh, on whether we have clear blue skies like we have today when we're recording, or uh, if it's going to be a rainy spring-summer day in Alaska. Uh, This is episode five of the podcast. Last week, um, I had the opportunity to interview Ian Johannes, one of our lay elders here at the church, and we talked about the idolatry of children and family. This was sort of a... um, follow-up to uh, the sermon that I preached the Sunday before in which we discussed uh, the goddess Heket of Egypt and the second plague that God put on Heket, the Pharaoh, and the people of Egypt to confront them with their idol of family. Uh, Specifically, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I recommend that you go back and, and listen to it. Whether you have kids or not, we dug down into a couple of ways that people parent naturally without Jesus, and then maybe a third option that we have as believers. We also spent some time, Ian did a great job, explaining to us the hope that we can have in Jesus if we are a young adult now, in our 20s or 30s and we grew up in a home where we were idolized. How do we adjust to a world that doesn't think we're that great? And how do we embrace the humility of Christ um, and experience the transition of that out of having kind of been told that we're God's gift to the earth? So really good discussion. I personally enjoyed it a lot, and uh, I'm excited to have Ian back on again soon. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to do a little bit of a follow-up to uh, the most recent sermon that I preached at the time of this recording dealing with Um, spiritual powers of darkness. And Tyler, I think we have four kind of questions or categories of things that we want to dig into.
1: That's right. Today, we're going to be talking about four specific things about the powers of darkness. Firstly, what are the spiritual powers of darkness? Then we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about those false gods and demons. Thirdly, we're going to talk about how do we experience the demonic today? What's going on today in our world? Has it stopped? And finally, we're going to talk about what we can learn from Jesus' response to the demonic. So, Philip, the first question is for you. What are the spiritual powers of darkness?
0: Yeah, so I think there probably are more for those who are more studied or learned in this. Um, But my understanding is that there are three broad categories of what we might consider to be spiritual powers of darkness. What we mean when we say that are... Spiritual powers, entities, beings that are not primarily physical. As human beings, the time that we spend living on the earth, we are primarily physical. We are mostly body, mind, things like that. We have a soul. We are soul in substance as well, but we're bound to a body, bound to a physical place. Um, Spiritual powers of darkness would be beings that are not bound to a physical body. Maybe they can um, become incarnate at different points. Uh, They can manifest or appear in the physical, uh, but they are primarily spiritual Uh, And in essence, I would argue, are more similar to God than they are to people, not in the sense that they're good. They're obviously against God. That's what we call them powers of darkness. But they're not primarily like bad people on the earth. They are spiritual beings. And so the first category and the broadest is what are known as principalities. This is a reference that the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's encouraging the Ephesian church to not be infighting, to not be divisive among themselves, but to rally and unify around the gospel and specifically what he calls the armor of God in order to fight a war that is against what he calls principalities and powers. In the Old Testament, this shows up in Daniel chapter 10. Um, The second half of the book of Daniel is uh, apocalyptic, which means that it deals with the end of time, the end of the physical realm that we live in. Um, And in it, Daniel receives a vision, he's an old man, and he receives a vision from an archangel who communicates to him that the archangel had been held up, he'd been delayed in coming to Daniel to answer his prayer, because he was fighting a battle against the prince of Persia, is the way that he communicates it. And... We don't understand that to mean that he was actually waging a physical war against a human being who had power over the kingdom of Persia. We understand that to mean that that there is a spiritual prince, a darkness, who is given dominion, whether it's by Satan or allowed by God, dominion over a specific region of the earth. And so principalities seem to be specific demons that manifest at specific times uh, and are present in government or, or are present kind of at a larger scale over regions of the earth, influencing, tempting, communicating to people that there's a way outside of God's way that's better and right. So that's kind of a broad spectrum of dark power. Um, More specific than that, we have whom we call Satan or the devil or Lucifer. Um, To use the term that the Hebrew uses, Satan's not actually his name in the Old Testament. He is the Satan. In Hebrew, we would say ha-Satan. So Satan, our English word, is just an anglicization of Satan, a Hebrew word that means adversary or enemy. Um, I want to read for just a second from Isaiah chapter 14. This is a passage that is classically attributed to the fall of Satan, from being an angel in God's presence to becoming his enemy. Um, Isaiah says this beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high, like God. But you are brought down to Sheol, or to hell, to the far reaches of the pit. And those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you, asking themselves, is this the one who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? So that prophetic... Uh, instance comes in the middle of a passage that's dealing with some of God's enemies. We believe and interpret that to sort of be the best example of the story of Satan's fall from being an angel of light in God's presence to becoming a selfish enemy of God. And then finally, this is the category that we dealt with most in the sermon yesterday, is the category of demons. And demons are kind of, um, they fall underneath the authority and leadership of the Satan. Um, They're selfish, destructive angels. And We want to focus our attention here today for the remainder of our time in this podcast episode, because Christians really have very little direct contact with principalities or powers or even Satan himself. Most of what we encounter, based on what we see in Scripture and our modern experience, is what we would call the demonic. So let's pivot there, Tyler. Um, If you don't mind, talk us through what does the Bible teach us about the demonic, and specifically, if you can, as you go, connect the dots between what we call the demonic and the category of false gods or idols. Sure, sure thing.
1: Uh, We're going to be looking at the book of Galatians here. I think this is a very helpful passage uh, about false gods. So Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, it says this. Paul's talking about the nature of sin and humanity. Uh, He's connecting some of that to the spiritual powers of this world. So Paul says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not gods. That are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he gives God the credit there, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days days and months and seasons and years. And then he gets real upset. He says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So he's saying you're wasting your time on all these things. These are the forces that that are of the world, but they are not the gods of the world. They are not the God of the world. You're observing the days and months, and you're worshiping things that deserve no worship. They steal worship from God. These are the things that, yeah, the world turns. That doesn't mean you have to worship
0: it. God is the one that turns the world. That's right, Tyler. And I think that it's funny. Anybody who's on Facebook or Twitter, probably any social media platform, is familiar with this idea of today is National Sibling Day, day. Hot Dog Day, Big Brother Day, Little Sister Day, Dogs with Short Legs Day. day, That's exactly right. To me, I'm not saying those things are necessarily modern idols, but doesn't it show that the same propensity people had in Galatia to pick a day and give it significance and somewhat build their value, their participation around that? We have that same streak in us now as well. Um, I want to read from Psalm 106. Um, This is a a passage of scripture. Psalm 106, if you're not familiar, is really a history of the nation of Israel up until the time that the psalm is written. Uh, Similar to Stephen, the martyr's speech in the beginning of the book of Acts. It's a great kind of review of what's happened in the Bible up to that point. Um, Where I'm going to read from, beginning in verse 34, is dealing with what we call the Judges period. So for those that were here in the fall of 2019, we preached through the book of Judges. Some of this will sound familiar to you. This is the accusation of God against his people. That they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, which we know to be true from the book of Judges. They did not drive out all the tribes they were supposed to. But instead, they mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did. Again, God is not xenophobic. He's not against other races. He's upset at the idolatry that comes with the intermarriage. Verse 36, they served their idols, which then became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land became polluted with blood, with the blood of these sacrificed children. Mm -hmm. And thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. So here the psalmist seems to equate the worship of idols to be synonymous with sacrifices made to demons, that there are actually dark powers behind those carved images, behind those human ideas of fertility or sex or power or money. Um, Very interesting, but also still kind of a little bit vague, kind of a high-level overview of what's going on. I think you had a passage to read that's a little more specific from the book of Isaiah.
1: That's right. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, He's referencing the, the other kind of category of dark, dark demonic powers, and that's principalities. Uh, king Hezekiah is praying for deliverance from a foreign military power, from uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. So this is Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord in verse 15 of chapter 37, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Mm -hmm. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire." For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. And a little bit of background to the story, Mm -hmm. uh, King Sennacherib sent uh, one of his high-ranking officers to basically just come to uh, all the servants of Hezekiah and and mock the living God, Mm -hmm. saying, Look, we have conquered all these lands and all these little gods, we have destroyed them, what makes you think your God can do any better?
0: It's interesting to me because Sennacherib understands the falseness of the foreign idols, but his response is not the right response. He doesn't see that and then go, well, there must be a living God somewhere who's better and higher than these things. He just exalts his own humanity. That's right. Which is a symptom of the demonic. It's one of the things the demonic loves to do, is to exalt and lift up human beings that's to right. convince steal them. Steal
1: that worship from the Lord, which that's is right. exactly what the king of Assyria was telling the Israelites to do.
0: That's right. And I think it's interesting that... The loudest voices in our culture against Christianity are typically these people who've built their career on their own atheism. And it's that, that's the that's the cry of Sennacherib to me. He's saying, Look, I've I have we have conquered all these other gods. We have explanations for these things, we've proven themselves we've proven ourselves to be more powerful than whatever you think your gods represent to you, and therefore follow. Us. Not just we're laying waste to this because there should be no religion, but specifically, I'm going to build a platform, if I'm a modern atheist, on the idea that I've got a better way for you. I'm not just knocking down your philosophy mm. of living. I want to replace it with my own, and I'm yes. going to be really happy if you'll come along with me. That's those principalities. For the journey, that's right. And then my favorite Old Testament story, uh, just a snapshot from the book of 1 Samuel. At this period of time, uh, God had chosen to put his presence on what's called the Ark of the Covenant of God. Uh, It doesn't mean that God wasn't still everywhere all the time, but he specifically was demonstrating a little bit of his glory, kind of hovering over and around the Ark all the time. And so he was teaching his people to be reverent to him, to worship him, and wherever they would bring the Ark of the Covenant, typically they would win whatever war they were fighting. Now there's some exemptions to that where God's people tried to manipulate God by bringing the Ark at the wrong time, or he would say, no, don't go to war, but they would bring the Ark anyway. Uh, This is one of those instances in 1 Samuel 5 God's people are fighting the Philistines, who aren't really a nation. They're just five warlords who kind of have decided to work together and not kill each other. And they capture the Ark of God. They defeat the people of God. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it into their Philistine lands. And I'm going to start reading in verse five of first. Or excuse me, verse one of First Samuel five. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer, which is where it had been, where the battlefield was, to a city called Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. And then the Philistines took the Ark of God, and they brought it into the house of Dagon. So Dagon is a Philistine god. He's actually a Babylonian god that probably the worship of has lasted for a few thousand years at this point. But they have a temple to him in the city of Ashdod, and they set up the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, next to the carved image of Dagon. We don't know if it's made of stone or wood, but it was probably larger than life-size, where people would come to make sacrifices to pray, to offer to Dagon. When the people of Ashdod, this is verse 3, rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, the carved image of Dagon, the Philistine god, had fallen face downward on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. They thought, I don't know, maybe they thought it was an aftershock like we have in Alaska. Something happened, he fell down. They don't find any spiritual significance in that. Now verse 4 says, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon... And both of his hands were lying cut off in the doorway to the temple. Only the trunk or the abdomen of Dagon was left to him, still lying prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. In that region, I don't know if there's still a temple to Dagon now, but there was when the book of First Samuel was written, those priests still step over the doorway when they come into the temple because they want no part of God's curse. And to give a little bit more follow-up, in chapter 6, the people of Philistia, the Philistines, give the ark back to Israel. And they do that because they keep moving it from city to city. Every time it arrives in a new city, people there get tumors all over their body. Mice attack their fields. And eventually they figure out, we got to get rid of this thing. So that very interestingly, they make an offering of golden tumors, which is nasty to me. I don't want to <laughs> see or touch those. And golden mice. They put them in a box. They put it in the back of a cart with two cows that have never pulled a cart before. And they basically just kick those cows on the rear end and trust that the Spirit of God will lead the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And he does. But I think it's so interesting that we see in the Old Testament our God interacting with, not just speaking to his people about avoiding bad ideas, which I think is what we think of modern idolatry. But to further apply, he goes to war with them in a very similar vein. And if you were to read through 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, you would hear the people of Philistia say that this is the living God who brought the plagues on the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This story happens uh, maybe 150 years after the end of the book of Exodus. And so what we're working on on Sunday mornings becomes God's reputation among all the nations of the earth, his willingness, his ability to attack and defeat other idols, other demons. So there's some, to me, a little bit of tie in there between not just that God is against the ideological practice of worshiping other things, but that he seeks to protect his people and he's willing to go to war with powers of darkness on behalf of his own kingdom and those who belong to him. That's right. I think the Bible makes a really clear distinction
1: in a lot of these passages that we're talking about false gods and false idols, but what we're really wanting to attribute worship to is the living God. And I think that is a major key distinction, uh, that none of these other idols, none of these other powers of darkness are going to lead to anything but death.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So, Philip, I have a question for you, and uh, maybe some background is I grew up in, you know, a Christian household. I grew up in a, in a relatively small Baptist church uh, on an island, no less. Uh, we never talked about this kind of stuff, so I think I, and maybe some of you it can resonate with this, uh, just assume that it doesn't still happen today. So the question is, how do we experience the demonic
0: today, Philip? Yeah, so you're saying, Tyler, that the, the Christian tradition that you grew up in, it wasn't so much that you guys were told explicitly this can't happen. That's right. It we just never wasn't talk talked about. about. Yeah. yeah. Never. Okay. Never. Okay. Maybe if we can just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. <laughs> That's what we sort hope. Sort of a tuck our head under the covers <laughs> kind of thing. Okay, cool. Well, I made this point yesterday and I just want to reiterate it again, that I believe that the demonic in the ordinary prompts the demonic in the extraordinary. And so yesterday I didn't have a lot of time to dig into this, but I want to use the same language that I used from stage. Um, when we talk about, the ordinary, what I mean is undercurrents. I mean that uh, times and places where evil things that go against God's plan, that go against God's word, that go against God's perspective on humanity, begin to make their way into national policy or public opinion. To, To harp on both of those things for just a moment, we find that in the story of the Exodus. That's exactly what Pharaoh did, is he taught his people to fear the Israelites, then he embraced that fear on a national level, then he codified that fear into policy. And I think those are the steps that can happen to any nation in the world, even our United States. We can do the same thing. We can be told that somebody is a threat to us. We can begin to embrace that culturally. And then we don't fight back. We don't speak up when that becomes codified. So the ordinary is those undercurrents. when We begin to embrace into our culture that this is just the way that it is. And yeah, maybe it's a little bit ugly, but it's a necessary evil is a kind of a term that we like to say. I remember in the 2016 election, a lot of people said they were just choosing the lesser of two evils. Not necessarily language that the Bible uses, not trying to get into politics at all, but I think we have some ideas where we make compromises sometimes that God doesn't make and doesn't tell us to make. So when that happens, then the demonic erupts. We find supernatural things happening, what we might call extraordinary things uh, that are clearly evil— we sometimes scratch our heads as to where they came from. Well, that's where we have to connect those extraordinary instances back to the themes that we see in the ordinary. So for instance, genocide. Anywhere genocide happens, there's been an indoctrination of a people to yes. believe that the people they are killing are evil. It and It starts
1: on a low level first. and never just comes out of nowhere.
0: Absolutely. And it sometimes is uh, catalyzed by one prolific leader but it takes a group of people to make any of these kinds of atrocities happen. Civil war, the same kind of thing. When a group of people begins to infight to the point, and I don't just mean like the American civil war, this can happen politically. It can happen in churches. It can happen in a family where one half of the group begins to see the other half as detrimental or negative or getting in the way of what would be right and best. And so Yes, there are going to be times and places where we might see supernatural manifestations of the demonic, like possession. I believe that that's real. The Bible has a category for that. Um, Like serial killers, oftentimes I think of serial rapists, people who are able to completely abandon their own humanity and the humanity of others. Uh, I think there's an element, and we don't have time to get into this today, but there's even an element maybe of generational curse involved in that. That's a category the Bible has that modern Christians don't talk about a whole lot where people in a family raised a certain way, underneath the pressure and the angst of generational sin, they turn out about the same way, over and over and over again. And I think that Jesus can break those chains, but sometimes those things have to be identified before they can necessarily be warred against. So I think we tend to see the demonic in ordinary ways, in principles, in government, in culture, And then we find eruptions, these moments in history where we look around us and go, boy, these things really boiled over. Even in our recent history, uh, some of the different um, rioting and um, rallies that have happened in response to evil things that should never have happened, like the killing of innocent people at the hands of police officers, things like that. uh, I think those are eruptions that are representative of the presence of evil in an undercurrent way. So I want to throw the ball back to you again here and let you maybe do the heavy lifting on this question. If that's true, if there is evidence of the demonic around us, how can we look to the life of Jesus and learn from his response to the demonic and maybe be discipled by him and how we ought to respond where we encounter the demonic in our own lives?
1: Uh, sure thing. When we look to the life of Jesus, uh, we see the way he interacts with sin and idolatry uh, in, in his walk, in his three-year ministry. I'd like to point us to the story of uh, the woman at the well. This is the story from John 4. John um, where he confronts this woman, and she tries to hide her sin. She says, Jesus tells her, can you go get your husband to draw some water? And the woman goes, oh, I'm not married. And Jesus, in a typical gotcha moment, says, I know that you're not married. It's good that you said that, because you've had four husbands, and the man that you're with right now is not even your husband. He doesn't do that in a cruel way. If we look later in the story, she goes out and tells everybody, look at this man that told me everything that I ever did. He is the Messiah because Jesus confronts her and exposes the sin, brings it to the light. Not that we might mock, not that we might uh, uh, look down upon, but we can do something about it and we can identify it. And it's kind of the same thing uh, that that Jesus does to the demonic, those undercurrents of of sensuality and idolatry that this woman was experiencing. You can probably feel the effects of that sort of idolatry, that sort of demonic presence in this woman's life uh, to this day in our own culture. If we go a little further... Uh, Where he confronts and exposes here, he takes it a step further uh, in Mark 10 with the rich young ruler, if you remember that story, um, where the young man asks Jesus, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus gives the book answer first. says, well, you know you have to do all these things. You have to follow all these rules. But here's the one thing that you're not doing right now. You have to sell everything you have. You have to give it all away to the poor. And then, and only then, can you follow me, Jesus says. He challenges next. He, we, that's what we can do is we can challenge the forces of darkness and and these, these uh, demonic forces that make our way into the mundane. Um, we confront, we expose, and then we can challenge them. And lastly, if we look further in the same story there, uh, I think the most important thing to do is not to just let it rest. That man went away sad. The rich young ruler went away sad because he was unwilling to... Uh, to allow Jesus to challenge him and to change his ways, he turns, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, this is the stuff that you must do to be saved. And the, 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 the disciples were amazed. They had no idea this was a thing. They're like, truly, if it's easier for a, a man to get into heaven, or if it's easier, excuse me, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven, who in the world can be saved? And Jesus, what he does to these these demonic principles, and he reorients them and says, what
0: is impossible for man, it is possible with God. And that is such an encouragement because Jesus doesn't pull punches, right? It's not that he's saying, uh, here's your get-out-of-jail-free card or your get-out-of-hell-free card, as some Christians some places have uh, probably undersold the gospel. But he's communicating, yeah, it actually is impossible. Your accuser... The enemy, the Satan, who tells you you're never going to be right with God, you're never going to be enough for him, you can't get to heaven on your own, Jesus is like, thank you, Satan, for paving the road to the (laughs) gospel. Well, you're
1: not wrong. Right. Let me tell you the next step.
0: That's exactly right. You don't have any hope in yourself. You can have hope in me. And I think that what's so interesting to me is, to use your three principles, Tyler, of confrontation, challenge, and reorientation, those are things that come when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our response to where we see the demonic in the ordinary, I think, is first and foremost to just ask the individual, maybe not try to attack the whole system at one time, but deal with the individual that we have access to, whoever it is who's speaking up on behalf of racism Mm -hmm. or speaking up on behalf of nationalism or classism or sexism or whatever that's crept into their mindset, is to confront them with the grace of Jesus. And especially where we find those mindsets within the church, we have to constantly reorient people back around Jesus, back around Jesus, not Jesus and politics, not Jesus and nationalism, Jesus and money, Jesus and being beautiful, Jesus and being powerful, whatever. Uh, We want people to be all about Jesus. And we say that all the time uh, at True North. So that's helpful. If you don't mind, let me dig a little deeper. That's a really helpful uh, response in how we can be like Christ when we encounter the demonic in the ordinary. I want to just reference one passage of scripture regarding Jesus, where he encounters the demonic in a very extraordinary way. Um, and then I want to make a little bit of application as we sort of land the plane today. Um, In Matthew chapter 8, there's a whole host of passages in the New Testament where Jesus exercises demons. He kicks them out of the bodies of people, of the souls and minds of people, and uh, this specific instance appears in a couple of the different Gospels. In Matthew's account, there are two men, so if you're familiar with the version of this from Luke, where there's only one man, probably just a different recollection of the same series of events. Uh, Matthew writes this in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, I think is how you say that, a Gentile group of people, two demon-possessed men met him, and they came out of the tombs, out of a graveyard, and they were so fierce that no one could pass by them. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Implying that they know that a time of judgment is coming and they think that Jesus is cheating and showed up too early to judge them. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus saying, if you cast us out of these men, send us away into that herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. Very interesting that they cannot leave until he tells them to do it. And they leave in his timing, at his word, with his authority. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now if that's not an indicator of the will of the demonic, what does the demonic want to do? Well, to kill and steal and destroy. The Bible has always said that. If that's the work of Satan, then his his understudies, his legions are going to do the same work. The herdsmen who, <clears throat> excuse me, the herdsmen who watched over the pigs fled and running into the nearby city, they told everybody everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave (laughs) their region. Very interesting that their response is not, thank you, Jesus, for delivering these men whom are made in God's image and we value, but instead was, in doing this act of mercy, you threatened our livelihood, you threatened our economy, you threatened our identity to some level. And how many times have we heard that lately from people who claim Christ, but use his word, weaponize his attitudes to preserve themselves instead of preserving those who are weak. So here's some application for me, because I think Jesus confronts the demonic head-on in the extraordinary, and I think he's always ready. He doesn't have to go, wait a second, you guys, i got to run back to the Catholic church down the street and grab some holy water and a crucifix and a couple other things before I can come back and do this exorcism. He speaks with authority to those demons because of who he is, not just what he can do. It's not what he's capable of that makes him Jesus. It's his essence. He is the living God in human form. Um, Application for us is we can get this right. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 14 to his disciples, and by extension, this is the very end of his life, he says this to all of us who are believers as well, that we'll do greater things than he did. Now, I come from a similar theological camp as you, Tyler. Uh, I grew up in a place where we also kept our heads under the blankets and didn't really want to act like this was real at all. And my encouragement to the modern believer would not be to become militant about finding the demonic and attacking it. I think evil, anywhere we find it in human life, is evidence of the demonic. So there's no shortage of that. That's easy. Take a walk on your street in your neighborhood, and you will see evidence of the demonic around you as people are angry with each other or dealing with poverty, are hungry at night and can't eat, are crushed by generational sins or curses or whatever it is that they're carrying from their parents, from their past, abuse, neglect, misuse, things like that. It's there. We can find it. We don't have to go find a girl whose head can turn around in 360 degrees to feel that we found the demonic. But we can also get this wrong. And I think if we're cheap about the way that we approach it, or if we're too focused on the demonic and not realizing that we're encountering and maybe expelling it in the name of Jesus because we are followers of Christ, this can happen to us. I want to read from Acts chapter 19. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. This is verse 11 of Acts 19. So that even handkerchiefs, even aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Very interesting. God is still giving credit. God is the one doing the miracles. It's not the napkin or the apron or the handkerchief or whatever. God is just using the faith these people have in that thing. He's responding to that faith by saying, yeah, if you're going to worship me, I'll heal you. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you or I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14 gets a little more specific. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest whose name was Sceva were doing this. This was common practice for them. But when they did it, the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped onto them, mastered or overcame all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was exalted. So there is a way to approach a demon possessed person and attempt to cast that demon out that ends with you getting beat up and your clothes torn off. I'm just saying, it's in the Bible. It does happen. True story. has happened at least one time to seven men. Seven men got beat naked by this guy. I love it. What it tells me is, yes, there's power in Jesus' name. Yes, the Apostle Paul had authority in that region. But these men were trying to wave that around like a magic wand. They were not disciples of Jesus. They were not following Paul's teachings as an apostle. And so I would argue that... That our ability to interact with and overcome the extraordinarily demonic is going to be a direct fruit to our faithfulness to Jesus. And that the holistic pursuit or discipleship or following of Jesus is much more important than us practicing our specific exorcism tactics. Um, I think that our responsibility is probably primarily to focus on the demonic in the ordinary, but to be prepared as Jesus was to encounter the demonic in the extraordinary. We shouldn't be surprised, that shouldn't challenge our faith, but the method that God has given us is a lifestyle and a gospel of peace that can impact, and even if you can think of it this way, I don't mean it negatively, but can infect systems and societies and cultures and cities and governments to the point that things change and the demonic is driven out of the ordinary such that we don't see it in the extraordinary anymore because we've not invited it in to our cultures, our societies, our homes, our cities, things of that nature. So that's as far as we're going to go today. Church, if you're listening to this and you have a specific question you'd like to follow up with us, you can always email us, info, I-N-F-O at truenorthalaska.com. Next week on episode six of the podcast, I'm going to be sitting down with my wife, Andy Coleman, really excited to do that, and discussing what it's like to follow Jesus as a woman today in our society, as a modern woman. Um, I'll sign off by saying what we always say to you. We love you, church. We're here for you. We hope that this has been an encouragement, and we will see you very soon.
1: See you next time.